evidence and answers. Who is Adam? How do the hominids like Neanderthal man fit in? What kind of literature is Genesis? Myth, history, or both? These are some tough questions that Christian scientists have been addressing for generations. A new book by premier Christian philosopher, theologian, and apologist, Dr. William Lane Craig, in the quest of historical Adam, attempts to answer these questions and more. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zugren. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today in our broadcast, Pat and his guest, Dr. Fazal Rana, will be critiquing Dr. Craig's book on the historical Adam. Now with part one of this three-part interview is our host, Pat. You're listening to Evidence and Answers, where we provide compelling evidence for faith and hope in Christ and biblical answers to the challenges of today. Well, who is Adam? How do the hominids and hominins fit in to the scheme of the origin of man? What kind of literature is Genesis? Myth, history, or a little bit of both? Well, these are some of the tough questions that Christian scientists and theologians have been addressing for generations. And we have a new book out entitled In the Quest of Historical Adam by one of the premier apologists of our day, Dr. William Lane Craig, which has created quite a conversation in the Christian world. Well, here to give us an analysis on this recent book is Dr. Fazale Rana. Dr. Fuzz Rana is Vice President of Research and Apologetics at Reasons to Believe, an organization dedicated to communicating the powerful scientific support for Christianity. Fuzz earned his bachelor's in chemistry with the highest honors from West Virginia State College and a PhD in chemistry with an emphasis in biochemistry from Ohio University. He's an author of numerous books, which we have featured on Evidence and Answers, which include Who Was Adam? Humans 2.0, Thinking About Evolution and Fit for a Purpose. So, Buzz, welcome back to Evidence and Answers. Pat, thank you so much for having me. Yes, you know, when it comes to issues of the Bible and science, you know, Reasons to Believe is one of the ministries that I often turn to, and Fuzz Rana is one of the guys that we often bring on this show to address these issues. Now, Bill Craig is one of the finest apologists and defenders of the Christian faith of our time, and we have had him at our conference here in Hawaii, along with uh, you as well, Fuzz Rana, and I'm sure you both are friends, so he is not unfamiliar with you and your work there at Reasons to Believe. Yeah, to your point, Pat, Bill Craig has influenced almost all of us who are involved in Christian apologetics and really is one of the, the chief defenders of the Christian faith in our modern times. And so I think both of us have nothing but the utmost respect and admiration for Bill Craig and are so grateful for his work and for his ministry. Yes, you know, and Bill Craig has written a recent book in the quest for the historical Adam that we want to critique today because it does raise some issues for us regarding the Genesis account and the creation of man. And since Bill Craig is such a premier figure in the area of Christian philosophy and apologetics, I think this book is gaining a lot of attention. So let's begin first, you know, Fuzz, with you. You know, what is your position regarding Genesis 1 through 11? Yeah, I mean, in a nutshell, I would view that particular passage of Scripture as a historical passage of Scripture, that it's uh, giving us information about, in Genesis 1, for example, a divine natural history 
describing God's work as creator, bringing the universe and then the earth into existence and then transforming the earth to be a suitable planet for life, introducing different life forms on the different days of creation and ultimately culminating in the creation of human beings. And, and I look at Genesis 2 as being an expansion you know, on the events of the sixth day of creation, giving emphasis to the creation of, of Adam and Eve. And then from Genesis 3 through Genesis 11, I see this as a primal history that really is uh, providing foundational ideas that are, are really setting the stage for the gospel itself. And so I see the, this passage of Scripture as being historical. Now, it's not I would not say it's an exhaustive history. There's obviously gaps in what is presented. You know, so I see it as, as a collection of historical snapshots that are arranged in a chronological sequence. So you might call it maybe compressed history or something like that. But it's definitely a historical passage of Scripture uh, because there's, a, you know, this emphasis on chronology that we see. We see genealogies in Genesis 5 and 11 that are communicating the existence of patriarchs that are described as real historical individuals. Uh, And so I I see this uh, passage of Scripture, again, in strictly in historical terms. So according to the way you look at Genesis 1 through 11, you would view Adam and Eve as the first human being. Yes, that's exactly right, that that Adam and Eve were Uh, the first human beings. They were created through God's direct intervention, made in his image. So I would be in that category of Christians that would reject any kind of evolutionary origin for humanity. I would say that, again, Adam and Eve were uh, created directly by God's intervention. They were not the product of an evolutionary uh, history, and that they gave rise to the totality of humanity, that in technical terms, we call them the sole progenitors of humanity. Now, Bill Craig has a different position on Genesis 1 through 11. What is Bill Craig's position and how does that contrast uh, with yours? Yeah, we are going to be a bit critical about the ideas that Bill Craig presents in his book. But one of the strengths of Bill Craig's book is his strong case that he makes for the historicity of Adam and Eve, where he argues that, you know, in no uncertain terms, both the Old and the New Testament actually teach that Adam and Eve were, again, the first human beings, that they were the sole progenitors of humanity, and that through their rebellion against God, that they are responsible for introducing moral evil uh, into the creation. And so this is a, a strong point in the book where he takes this strong position about not only Adam and Eve's historicity, but really the importance of their historicity in terms of preserving biblical inerrancy and even in terms of preserving the divinity of Christ. And so that is, a, a again, a, a very powerful feature of the book. But what Craig does is he approaches the question of human origins from an evolutionary standpoint. So this is, would be one place where his views and our views would, would begin to diverge. And in order to uh, correlate an evolutionary history of humanity with the biblical account of human origins, he takes the view that Genesis 1 through 11 is mytho history. And of course, he spends a lot of time making a case for that because he argues that this is the passage of Scripture in the Old Testament that really gives us the most information about Adam and Eve. And so his point is that the best way to square 
again, Genesis 1 through 11, with an evolutionary history for humanity and an evolutionary origin for humanity would be, again, if Genesis 1 is not to be taken as literally true, but rather is to be viewed as, a, as mytho-history. Yes, uh, explain that a little bit for us. What is mytho-history and, you know, why does Bill take that position regarding the Genesis account, especially those first 11 chapters? Mytho-history is essentially a category or of a type of literary genre. And it was discovered by an Assyriologist named Jacobson. And it essentially refers to a piece of literature that is mythical. That is, again, it's not to be understood as being literally true, though it may be communicating uh, theologically important ideas, but that the figures that are the main characters in that mythology were likely to be real historical figures. So Craig looks at Genesis 1 through 11 and, and, you know, taps into the work of other, you know, Old Testament scholars who argue that Genesis 1 through 11 is essentially a version of an ancient Near Eastern creation myth. And he argues that Genesis 1 through 11 have 10 features that are common to myths that define myths. And so he argues that Genesis 1 through 11 is a sacred narrative in which a deity plays a central role and that it is a primal history that gives us an explanation for why the world is that way. But he argues that when you look at Genesis 1 through 11, there are, you know, inconsistencies in the text. There are these, what he refers to as these fantastical elements that anybody picking it up, reading it would recognize that if any of this was literally true, that you would wind up with essentially a false description of the way things are. And so he argues that people, again, understood this to be mythical, but yet at the same time, the author of Genesis 1 through 11, according to Craig, seems to be concerned with at least history to some degree, that there's a chronological presentation of what happens in Genesis 1 through 11, that, again, when you look at the genealogy in Genesis 11, it culminates in Abraham, which we know is a real historical person. Therefore, the people that are in the genealogies in Genesis 11 and Genesis 5 most likely are real people, including Adam and Eve. And they also may be making reference to real geographical places in the myths and even real events that may have taken place, but again, they've been mythologized. And so he argues that it's not strictly myth but it's definitely not history. It is a kind of a, a blending of, of mythology with history where, again, the figures that are in that mythology are real figures that likely existed. So it would be very similar to some of the tales that people may have heard about Daniel Boone, right? That these tales are probably most certainly not true, but Daniel Boone was a real figure that lived where he's playing a role in a, in a type of um, you know, early American mythology, kind of communicating truths about the American ideal and the American spirit. But at the same time, the, the stories about Daniel Boone that we hear that people tell one another are likely not true, though Daniel Boone may have actually existed as a person. Yeah, and I think that's where it makes a lot of us who take the Genesis account as historical really uncomfortable, having studied under several liberal Old Testament scholars and theologians. Does Craig's view 
of Genesis as mytho history kind of opened the door to a liberal interpretation of Genesis that denies its historical nature? I think so. And, you know, and I don't think by any means this is Bill Craig's intent. This is my concern, you know, because in no uncertain terms, the reason, Pat, why you and I think that Christian, that ideas in Christian theology are valid is because those ideas are anchored and arise out of a real events that have happened in space and time. That is, the validity of Christian theology is anchored on the fact that the events that produced that theology really happened. And so if you go to Genesis 1 through 11, which is a, a passage of Scripture that is foundational to the Christian faith, it's foundational to the gospel itself, and you argue that those events that are there are mythical, they are not real events, then you are really eroding the foundation upon which the validity of Christian theology rests. And so that would be my big overarching concern, is that, you know, and and Bill Craig doesn't really give us any kind of real criteria for how we know what in that passage of Scripture is actually to be taken as literally true, as historically valid, and what is actually mythical. And so when it describes human beings being made in God's image, is that mythical, or is that a real description, or that human beings fell, right, that we rebelled against God and that we fell, and that the, the results of that rebellion are now propagated to all of Adam's descendants, to all of humanity? Is that real? Did that really happen, or is that mythical, right? And so that, to me, represents, again, my biggest concern, and I think it's the concern that you're expressing as, to, as well, Pat, right? Yes. Some may say that, well, in doing that, Bill Cray would be denying the inerrancy of the Bible. But we know that he's a strong defender of the inerrancy of the Bible there. So how how does he kind of put those two together? Yeah, well, you know, and to be clear, in his book, he makes a strong case that to reject the historicity of Adam and Eve, because again, he does argue Adam and Eve were real historical individuals, and he even would argue that they are sole progenitors for humanity. And he argues that to deny that would be to undermine the inerrancy of Scripture, because Scripture clearly teaches that Adam and Eve were real historical individuals, based on his analysis of not only the Old Testament, but the New Testament, and particularly the writings of, of the Apostle Paul in Romans, for example, where Paul really believes that there was a real historical person you know, named Adam, who is responsible for the problems that we all have as human beings, our, our ultimate separation from God, which Jesus, as the second Adam, essentially undoes through his work on the cross, where he brings about a reconciliation to overcome the consequence of Adam's rebellion. And so Craig is arguing for the inerrancy of Scripture, and what he's doing with his approach is to argue that to maintain inerrancy in light of an evolutionary history for humanity, you have to look at Genesis 1 through 11 as something other than a literal historical account by treating it as a as mytho-history, as identifying its genre as mytho-history, you now are preserving the inerrancy of Scripture. Yes, and some of the things he points out, he makes a good case that there seem to be some inconsistencies in Genesis. You've got the plants, but there's no sun and things like that. Are there answers to some of these apparent, what appear to be inconsistencies in Genesis? Yes, you know, I think there are. So 
for example, one of the inconsistencies that he spends a bit of time on is this idea that in Genesis 1, God is presented as this transcendent creator that brought everything that we see into existence. And then in Genesis 2, we see God being presented in anthropomorphic terms, where he is taking on the form of a human being, so to speak, that he's humanized, that he's anthropomorphized. And Craig argues, well, that's a depiction of God that is commonplace in the ancient Near Eastern, or at least a, a depiction of gods, because the ancient Near Eastern creation myths are polytheistic, and Genesis 1 through 11 is clearly monotheistic. But they argue that anthropomorphic presentation of God is similar to the ancient Near Eastern you know, creation accounts. And so he argues right there, God is being presented in very different terms. And his argument would be, even the person that writing this would recognize this inconsistency. And if it was a historical account, then you would not present things that way. But if it's a mythical account, what's the big deal? What's the concern? You know, and so that would be one example that, that Bill Craig spends quite a bit of time on. Now, of course, in Genesis 18, we also see God being presented in an anthropomorphic sense. And nobody denies that that portion of Scripture is historical or that it's somehow presenting God in an inconsistent way. And there have been biblical scholars and Christian apologists who have addressed that apparent inconsistency by pointing out that Genesis 1 through 11, Genesis 1 is functioning very differently than Genesis 2 in terms of the the creation passage or in the creation account, where Genesis 1 is essentially presenting us with a divine natural history where God is presented to us as a transcendent creator, emphasizing kind of God in philosophical terms. And, And the word for God used there is Elohim. In Genesis 2, the word for God that's used is Yahweh, emphasizing God's personal nature and his personal relationship with Adam. And so, in other words, it's not truly an inconsistency, but it's presenting different facets of of God's nature and God's character, emphasizing them in service to what's being communicated in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 regarding God's role as creator. So that's an example of an inconsistency that other scholars have essentially resolved that Craig uh, seemingly dismisses in his analysis. Also, Craig talks about there are fantastical elements in Genesis 1 through 11. You know, a talking serpent, two trees in a garden, the lifespan where they're living hundreds of years. You know, are there answers to these what seem to be supernatural or fantastic elements there in the early chapters of Genesis? Yeah, you know, by delineating those particular features of Genesis 1 through 11 as being, again, fantastical elements, what Craig is doing is, in my view, is coming dangerously close to stripping that portion of Scripture of its supernatural content. And there are scholars like, you know, my my colleague and friend Hugh Ross, who in his book Navigating Genesis shows how these so-called fantastical elements could actually be understood in such a way that that they are actually scientifically credible. So let's take long lifespans as an example. I think those long lifespans in Genesis 5 and 11 are real to be understood as being literally true, as being this was the the actual lifespan of humanity. And of course, that seems to be a, a bit absurd, but yet we are now looking at biomedical advances in the biology of aging 
in which scientists have actually been able to not only stop the aging process, but reverse the aging process in some small-scale clinical studies, where the participants of those studies who receive different treatments actually at the end of those treatments are biologically two years younger than their actual chronological age because they're biological markers that that essentially reflect our age. And so, you know, we are on the cusp of having potentially breakthroughs in treating aging as a disease, which is a bizarre concept, uh, where people arguing that if aging is thought to be like a disease, that we can not only stop aging from happening, that we can cure people of aging. And now there's discussion, serious discussion, among some biogerontologists of extending human life expectancy in the near future to several hundreds of years, maybe even to pushing a thousand years or so. And if this is actually possible through really subtle manipulations of our biochemistry, through drug treatments and other types of regimes, is it not possible that God could have created human beings to actually live hundreds of years, and that, as we see in Genesis 6 through 9, that God stepped in and intervened and shortened our life expectancy because of our, the wickedness of the human heart, and that the life expectancy we see today is a result of God stepping in again and responding to our rebellion, responding to our wickedness. As Genesis 6 says, the only thought in the heart of every person was only evil all the time. Right? And so as a way to remedy that, God shortens life expectancy to curtail that spread of evil. So it, you could see that as a divine mercy. But the larger point here is that there is work happening in the biology of aging that suddenly makes those long lifespans in Genesis 5 and 11 seem to be scientifically credible. They're no longer, or this idea of a talking snake, that's something that Skeptics will raise all the time, in my experience, that, that's something they love to bring to bear. Old Testament scholar Michael Heisner points out that the, the Hebrew word that's translated as snake or serpent, and I, off the top of my head, don't remember the word in, in the original Hebrew, but it can be, that word can be used as a noun, a verb, or as an adjective. And if it's used as a noun, it does indeed translate as serpent, but if it's used as a verb, it means, it means one who divines. It's referring to divination. And if it's used as an adjective, it means shiny. And so when you put it together, what it's essentially communicating is that this serpent is most likely Lucifer that makes an appearance in the Garden of Eden. That appearance is serpentine in nature, but that it's a real appearance of Satan in the Garden tempting Eve and tempting Adam is, you know, indirectly. And so, again, by calling this a fantastical element that you know, renders Genesis 1 through 11 as mythical, really strips Genesis, that passage of Scripture, of its supernatural content. And the idea that there really was uh, Satan who tempted humanity, and as a result of that, coaxed us in, into rebelling against God, and as a result, introducing moral evil into the world. So, you know, Craig is comfortable with the idea that human beings, again, that Adam and Eve introduced moral evil into the world that infects all of humanity as a result of that, but yet it seems to be uncomfortable with the the biblical account that is describing how how that moral evil was introduced into the creation. Yeah, I think you got a lot of people really intrigued by about how we successful treatments to stop aging 
and uh, things I think uh, we're going to get a lot of phone calls on that when this show is done. Oh, yeah. That, but that's another show, I tell you. Well, the, the main question then here is who does Bill Craig identify as Adam? Yeah, well, Bill Craig, again, is viewing the origin of humanity in, in evolutionary terms. And so he argues that when you do a scientific analysis of that question, who was Adam? Because his view is that if Genesis 1 through 11 is mythical or a mytho history, then the, the biblical text really isn't capable of giving us an answer to that question. Our time today has come to a close. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. We have a wide variety of different topics that will make for an incredible conference series. If you are interested in having Pat speak at your church, Bible study, or even schedule an apologetics conference at your church or location, give him a call in Hawaii. That number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Be sure to use our search engine for available resources. We have everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. To keep quality broadcasts like Pat's on the Air, we rely on generous financial support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to partner with us, once again, head on over to our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Evidence and Answers would like to thank one of our sponsors, the Honolulu Christian Church. If you don't have a home church and are looking for a great place to connect and grow in Christ, check out the Honolulu Christian Church. For service times, log on at honoluluchristian.org. That's honoluluchristian.org. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucaran. Zucaran.